from Wyoming Public Media. This, this, this is this is spoken 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 words spoken words. This is spoken words. I'm Micah Schweitzer. It may be shocking for you to hear this, but if I'd never been to America, if I was an Irish person who'd never left those Wicklow Hills, I would still be capable of being in love with America. In this episode, we're hearing from award-winning Irish playwright and novelist Sebastian Barry. His most recent book, Days Without End, follows Irish immigrant Thomas McNulty through his service to the U.S. Army in the Indian and Civil Wars. Thomas is based a bit on family lore, as one of Barry's distant ancestors made the same journey in the mid-1800s. But the book is also the story of Thomas's relationship with a fellow soldier, John Cole, perhaps inspired by more recent family history. I mean, I'm just, you know, another stupid straight man, and I am privileged to have a son who is gay and who has gone out of his way to try and teach me about the glories of being gay. And I have observed him in his relationship with uh, his young man, and I've concluded in myself that, you know, this is not a condition of being we should be necessarily just tolerating, but there's a lot to learn from it. There's a glory in it, and we should, we should try and emulate such delicacy of love between people. So Toby's coming out happened accidentally, concurrently with the starting of the book, and the book drew all these things into it, and it was a thrill for me to have this entirely new country to write about not only America of the 1850s, but this more unknown terrain, unwritten terrain of being gay in America in a time when uh, the word gay itself didn't even exist. Here's Barry reading from Days Without End in a scene where a flood crashes down on the young men's army camp. We weren't even all up there when something queer was stirring in the distance. No one had ever seen the light. It looked like someone had put the ocean on top of the forest just thrown it down there and now the ocean was doing the inevitable in the scientific way and was hammering and surging down towards us. We felt like 300 very small and foolish creatures when we saw that standing as we were on a bunch of low roofs. Major almost screams out his orders and then the sergeants were echoing him and then the men were trying to respond. But what had the major said? What had the sergeants called out? Where to go? We were already the citizens of a shallow sea. That coming wave looked like twenty feet of death. The flood came so quickly you couldn't have laid a bet on it. You couldn't have got the book open quick enough to mark the wager. Then the wild, vicious thing reached our camp and spread itself over it, carrying half of the forest with it. Trees and branches and bushes and bears and deer and God knows what. Birds and alligators, though I never saw alligators up there to be truthful. Wolves and mountain cats and snakes. Everything was gone then with a flood that was able to be unmoored and moved. Those fellows on the roofs had the shittiest cards in the deal. It was like nature's hand just swept them off the table. I could feel our shade tree bending with the force, and it was twelve feet around the base. Man, it bent, then unbent. Now we were nearly arrows being fired. Hold on there, John Cole. Hold on, Thomas. So we held, we gripped, we fastened ourselves. The great old tree whanged in the boiling waters. I doubt I will ever hear such a sound again. It was well-nigh musical. Dozens of troopers must have drowned. Maybe Watchorn and Pearl might have wished to be among them, but they survived. Me and John Cole? Thank God, John Cole. The Major and two hundred others, it was the men in the trees was mostly saved. Those roofs too low. We found bodies for the next weeks lower down as the floodwaters fell. The townspeople came down and helped us with the burying. They hadn't been so crazy as to build their town in a flood path anyhow. Guess we knew then what had scalloped out that ground. Goddamn engineers. 
Then a queer fever went through the camp. Maybe it was yellow fever, something like that, something that liked a lot of wetness. Our cattle were gone off, of course, and all our dry goods were wet goods. The townspeople gave us what they could, but the major said we had to go back to Missouri, even though the grass would only be coming small on the prairie. This little tour is done, he said dryly. The major's wit. It was the driest thing in the camp. Thomas's narration carries the book across America and back, from Missouri to Wyoming to Tennessee. Even though his journeys in America are filled with death and despair, Thomas is full of joyful resilience. I think the, the most important thing about Thomas and what was very thrilling for me to try and get a hold of his voice was that he loves being alive. He's still alive. This is his great victory over the world. And even though he's been in tremendous dangers and been through massacres and been through all sorts of things and his terrible childhood, nevertheless, he's grateful. And he feels he has seen wonders and he wants to show us the wonders he has seen, even the darkest ones. Sebastian Barry says Westerns are a product of a specific era, something that's almost inaccessible in the modern West. It's not a American Western as such. It's not a spaghetti Western, you know, which were the great Westerns made by Italian directors. It's a sort of potato Western, I suppose you could call it. I mean, Thomas leaves Ireland because the potato failed in Ireland and caused this tremendous famine. And the other entrancing thing for me about it was, even if you've been to America, even though even if you live in modern Wyoming, the roads do not go to that America anymore. And there's a great sadness in all those people, all those Irish people, all those European people who went to America for whatever reason, and many, many, many of them in their time, never able to ride home, never be heard of again. So in a way, I'm trying to rescue this poor old lost great-great-uncle from that cold hand of history. But even the ostensibly American characters in the book still find themselves without a home they can return to. There's a lovely phrase in Irish, the calf returns to where it got the milk. But sometimes our heart and soul don't quite believe that the place we identify as home is home. But even the America you're writing about, one of the most challenging and fascinating things was that, you know, at the beginning of the book, Wyoming, as we know it, didn't exist. It was part of something called Nebraska Territory. It was only in the 1860s that, that those things started to be defined. So even though they're on the map with things indicating where they are and names on them, they were shortly to change anyway. So that must have been fantastically disorientating, if also in some curious way thrilling to have this shape-shifting map underneath your feet. And Barry thinks that's part of the draw of the American West, even if now we're much more likely to recognize its devastating consequences. I, I mean, I live a quiet life, in, mostly in, the, in an old house in the Wicklow Hills, but even I can see that actually going out to America must have been almost catastrophically exciting thing to do. And it, there's a still a yearning in me or in people as creatures to, to do that, to find that America. Like, like the Simon and Garfunkel song, we've all gone to look for America. But the other th side of that, of course, is that it was a beginning country, but it, it was tolling the end of a, of a very great civilization of Native America. So there's all, always that huge, huge sorrow hanging over this history. But even so, even so, you feel that if it was there still, you know, I even felt it. If it was there still, I'd, I'd go out to find it. But even focusing on the creation narrative, Barry believes there's still a significant part of the story that often goes untold. Most stories of pioneers focus on those who succeeded, but Thomas and John Cole are continually haunted by those who turned back. 
you either got some sort of work or, or you probably just died. You just vanished away, like something vegetative almost on the landscape. Uh, and all those descriptions, especially in Wyoming, when the trek west really started going, it surprised me and interested me enormously that so many people would get as far as, say, Fort Laramie and then think, no, I'm not, this is not working. I'm going back east. You know? And a lot of people just turned around and left their wagons so that they were bestrewn in front of the fort eventually, like a graveyard of people's hopes. Do you know, it's not just the positive going through story of America, uh, which you do hear so much about. It's also those intriguing setbacks and people returning and people being discouraged in, in their efforts because it's so tremendously demanding. To get a sense for that shifting map, Barry spent lots of time reading histories and accounts of the Indian and Civil Wars, tales of so much gunfire on dry battlefields that the ground itself caught fire. But then he tried to forget what he'd read. The part of your brain that reads, unfortunately, is not the part of the brain I don't think that you write out of. So you have to also spend another few months forgetting what you've read so that those salient few little sand grains will sink down into the other part of your brain that writes and form something there so that when you're doing the book, those things rise up naturally as if they truly were your own memories or truly were the memories of Thomas. Barry says some of those grains of memory for an American novel come naturally to him, even as an Irishman. You know, it's, it may be shocking for you to hear this, but if I'd never been to America, if I was an Irish person who'd never left those Wicklow Hills, as many haven't, I would still be capable of being in love with America simply because it is our imaginative world. The, cargo, the great cargo cult of American culture that comes, washes onto the Irish shore has replaced in many ways you know, ancient Irish mythologies that were supposed to be used to as children. It is all the John Ford films, and it is all, you know, Laurel and Hardy. It is um, the Marx Brothers, room service, room service, send us up a room. I mean, it's all those things have inhabited us, so we're almost crazy passportless citizens of America, even without going there. But at the same time, when I was 17 in 1973, uh, with my friend, uh, we hitchhiked four or 5,000 miles all through America, which you could still do quite safely in those days, down through Tennessee, in, in such a way, at an age where you're so raw in your brain that actually, you, you, you know, you do have a kind of outlaw citizenship of the place. So in, in a sense, that was my research without realizing what I was doing all those years ago, and that's a long, long time ago. His most memorable moments from that trip range from the commonplace to the life-altering. How shocking to say this, but we had heard rumors of something called McDonald's in Ireland. We had heard rumors of this magical construct called the Big Mac. <laughs> and it was kind of a poetic madness to actually go there. I also remember being, because you're, you've no money basically, you're traveling very much incognito and possibly a bit like Jesse James or Billy the Kid would have trying to get down to Mexico. You're depending on the kindness of strangers, certainly. I remember one particular, am I allowed to say podunk town in Tennessee? I hope that's not too pejorative. But the sheriff saw us coming in, uh, and he, he came up behind us, and he put us in his car, and he drove us through the town and put us out the other side. He said, because I don't want the trouble of strangers in this town. So it was very thrilling for us to be moved on by the sheriff. And in a way, it was my beginning as a writer, because the first story I ever wrote was about going into the Smoky Mountains. You know, after the first day in, you... It's not the bears are in the cages, it's the human beings are in the cages to sleep at night. And then to come out 
relatively safe from bears in the daylight and see the great ocean of mist that pushes in against the mountains there. And you're just sitting there on a ledge alone with your friend looking out over this. This landscape that answers all the romance of your imagination. It's not a place that has disappointed you. And I think that is the strange promise of those American landscapes. They truly are magisterial and great, just as you imagine them to be. And that changed me as a human being, and I think was my first signal to be a writer. It was like a prompt to try and remember and somehow record the majesty of the earth. In addition to his travels, Barry's work in theater influences his understanding of these characters. Barry's had 14 plays produced over the course of his career, so even when he's writing novels, he hears his characters in a different way. The great magic of theater is that the words are returned to the air. You know, it's as if writing has not been invented. It's very ancient. It feels more like Australopithecus than maybe even Homo sapiens. My most successful moments in the theater have been because the actors involved in the play have been so great that they have virtually rewritten the play upon the air. I mean, they haven't changed the words, but they're giving it the life that they have within them as an author. They're authoring the play. In a way, for me, Thomas, John, even somebody as roguish as Starling Carlton, Lige Megan, all the people in that book, for me, are terribly real because it's as if they're represented, as if they're being acted by great figures standing just to left or right of them. Days Without End won the Costa Book of the Year Award for 2016. But even at this point in his career, Barry still thought the book might be a failure when he first finished it. I was in despair. I finished it in December and I thought, okay, well, obviously this is probably not right, but maybe in January I can just get a wind in my sails and write another book and we'll be all right. You know, because you have to feed your babies and send them to college, you know, from your books. But I thought, I, yeah, I actually thought this was, a, this was a disaster of some sort. He does have one very specific goal for adapting the book. I hope, you know, if we do make it properly and it's seen in countries where to be gay is a very dangerous thing, that people will see these two men and think what wonderful human beings they are and how well they love each other. You know, and maybe we should think about shifting some of these disgusting and ignorant laws that we have in our country. The day we spoke with Barry, he met with producers to celebrate reaching a deal to adapt Days Without End into a film. This episode was produced by Annie Osborne. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Spoken Words is a collaboration between the University of Wyoming's MFA in Creative Writing program and Wyoming Public Media.